our job in our lab is to give people information in a format that they can use to understand problems. So we're not in the business of telling people what to think, right? We're just in the business of helping people think maybe a little bit better about the things that they already care about. Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Dreaming radically is a necessity if we are to reach a world of liberation for all marginalized peoples. Imagining the world we want to see and then fighting like hell to go and get it. Dream radically is a hope, a strategy, a goal of altering the status quo in our quest for social transformation. Join us on this journey. Let's dream. Hi, everyone. It's Dana Mahmoud. I am the head of the mentorship program and a Global Vision team member with the Foundation of Liberating Minds, and I will be your host for today's episode of Dream Radically. Today we have with us Dr. Adam Feltz. He serves as an associate professor of psychology at the University of Oklahoma. He specializes in theoretical and applied science for ethical and informed decision making. Dr. Feltz is regarded as one of the world's experts of the psychology and philosophy of ethical disagreement and is best known for his groundbreaking work in identifying sources of fundamental philosophical biases in moral judgment. Dr. Feltz serves as a co-founding member and co-director of riskliteracy.org and is a member of OU's Center of Applied Social Research and a member of the editorial board at Journal of Experimental Psychology Applied. And today we are talking about water. <laughs> well, thanks for inviting me to, um, to, to talk a little bit about this. So, the, so water has been increasingly become a problem, uh, not just in other countries, but also in the United States. And so if you look at some of the statistics, you see that the availability of reliable, fresh, clean drinking water becoming increasingly scarce. And so according to some estimates, something like one in nine people in the world don't have access to reliable drinking water. About a third of the world's population lives in countries where there's water-stressed situations. So they're in, in danger of not uh, having uh, access to clean, reliable drinking water. About 80% of the world's population uh, are in areas that are approaching the maximal current use water usage levels that they can have. And these issues in water availability are only going to become worse. So the United Nations has projected that these water issues, the water scarcity issues, are actually going to become more dramatic in the future with things like, among other things, uh, issues involved in global warming. So this is a problem that affects everybody. So it's not just certain parts of the world that are having the, these issues. It's also in the United States. So it's not us or you. It's us and you kind of a thing. Yeah, what'd you say? I I think that's fairly accurate. So there are many jurisdictions in the United States that have uh, struggling to get access to clean water, and they're starting to approach the maximum level that they can provide for the people in the current demand. So it's not it's not just us. Like so, um, one of the tenets with the water community is that water's not created or destroyed, right? It's just moved around. Mm -hmm. um, and so somehow we're we're all in this in in the water shortage together. When you said approaching maximal current water usage, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so lots of jurisdictions have a maximum amount of clean water that they can produce. So, for example, here in Norman, I can't remember the exact value, but there's, there's just a maximum amount of water that the water treatment plant can produce to distribute. And at certain points, demand starts to approximate that maximum output. Right? Mm -hmm. And obviously, when you get above that level of demand, that's when you run into one into water shortage problems. Um, and there are lots of jurisdictions, even in the United States, that are running up against this. Mm -hmm. So, for example, lots of the drier parts of the country. So, for example, uh, lots of jurisdictions in California are having this particular issue. 
even in the Southern Plains where we live, um, there are some jurisdictions that are having this problem. So for example, oh, some time ago, Wichita Falls was thinking about alternatives to producing uh, reliable drinking water for their communities. So what are different forms of water treatment that people have thought about? So the, the traditional way to produce water is just to kind of grab it from areas that are around you. Uh, so this is sometimes called de facto water reuse. So, so you can grab it from aquifers, you can grab water from lakes or rivers or reservoirs, and then you take that water into the water treatment plant, and then you treat it up to drinking level quality, and then you distribute it up to the community. Mm-hmm. So that's probably the, the dominant way that we go about producing water here in the United States for, for communities. You just kind of go grab it. But there are lots of other ways you could do it too. So another way you could do is sometimes called indirect reuse. So what happens in, in, with indirect programs is that your wastewater goes to the water reclamation facility, and then it gets treated up to a fairly high level, and then it gets re-injected back into the place where you grab your water for drinking. So for example, you would re-inject that, that highly treated wastewater into aquifers, lakes, rivers, and then the water treatment plant would grab it again and then clean it up to water, drinking level quality and then distribute it back out to the community. And so in this way, you see, you kind of close the loop where you're not just grabbing water that was treated maybe upstream, but it comes down, you, you just close the loop down. So you take the water that you've already used and stick it right back into the place where you're getting the water to drink again. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the thing that we've been focusing on uh, in our lab is direct potable reuse. And so this happens where you take the water from the treatment plant and you just remove the step of injecting it into an environmental buffer, like an aquifer or a reservoir or a lake, and you pipe that highly treated water directly back to the water treatment plant, where it's then cleaned up again and then distributed to the community. Mm-hmm. So those are probably the dominant ways. There are a couple other ways you could go about doing this too. So one, one way to produce more water is desalination. So mm-hmm. you just take salt water and you get rid of the salt and the impurities and then distribute that. But that tends to be pretty cost intensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I obviously, feel like that's <laughs> everyone's way of, you know, water, water is such a problem. We need more water. Just <laughs> take it out of the ocean, right? Take it where we have it. 70% of this earth is water. Just take it where we have it. That's the problem. It costs a lot of money to do that. And you have to have available salt water around you. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so like, like we're in Oklahoma, that's a problem because we don't have salt water around us. So where are we going to get our water? Right. I mean, we could pump it in, I guess, from yeah. down in the Gulf, but that would just increase the costs even more. Exactly. And so a lot of these landlocked jurisdictions are trying to find alternative ways to meet that demand that's not available in the environment for them currently. Mm-hmm. And so direct reuse is one thing that people have really been interested in um, because you just really close down the loop. And you can generate clean, reliable drinking water sustainably for quite a while using direct reuse water. Mm -hmm. With direct reuse water, I know that one of the big problems is people tend to maybe not trust it because it does come from our wastewater. Mm -hmm. So it's really just trying to see then at that point what we can do to get people to trust it. Because as we know so far, the technology is there. From the engineering side of it, it is really as good as as it can be right now. There are other places who have implemented direct reuse water and have had tremendous success stories with it. So if you want to tell us a little bit yeah. about Singapore and Namibia. Yeah, sure. I mean, so, so Dana, what you said is exactly right. It's not a technical issue anymore. So the, the engineers have figured out how to reclaim this wastewater and treat it up to levels that are just as safe as regular tap water. There can be implementation challenges, right? So different parts of the world have different geographies, so it can, that can pose some implementation problems, but it's not a technological issue anymore. And probably, like you said, the biggest issue surrounding water reuse is just public sentiment. 
um, like you said, people just are adverse to drinking what they consider to be something that's directly taken from their wastewater. Even though we already know with de facto water reuse, that's exactly what's happening anyway, mm -hmm. right? So it's just coming downstream from some other jurisdiction. And with, with direct reuse, you're just taking your own and reusing it. And like you said, there are plenty of places around the world that have had success in implementing direct reuse programs. So probably one of the first ones that have ever done this was in Windhoek, Namibia. Mm -hmm. And I believe that was back in 1968, they implemented a direct reuse program. And they were, they were in trouble because they weren't, they weren't gonna have enough water to support the people that needed the water. But then they, Windhoek implemented the program and had great success. And by some accounts, now something like 80% of people in Windhoek approve of the reuse water programs that they have there. Singapore is another great example. Uh, so Singapore, I believe in 2003, uh, they implemented their program. So their new water program was exactly like Namibia. They have direct reuse. And through a lot of effort and public outreach, they now have something like 98% approval for their reuse programs. And just to give you a comparison, in the United States, if you just poll the average American, um, less than 50% of people here would be willing to drink uh, reuse water. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, big, there's a big difference between places like Singapore and Windhoek and America in terms of acceptance for direct reuse. And this has actually become a big problem for certain jurisdictions. So they were thinking about doing reuse programs in places like San Diego or Tampa Bay. And public sentiment was so strongly against those programs that they stopped the programs. I mean, so one question we might have is like, well, what explains this big difference, right? So what explains this big difference between the average American and people who live in Singapore and people who live in Windhoek, Namibia? Right? So why, why is there this difference? Okay. Mm -hmm. One of the big things that we can think about is disgust, right? Mm -hmm. So as we said before, people won't trust it because it's their wastewater. It just doesn't fit this idea of clean, fresh water that everybody has, right? But when you look at places like Singapore and Namibia, I mean, their disgust sensitivity isn't any different there than ours. So, I mean, what else could it possibly yeah. be? I mean, you're right. So, I mean, if you just ask somebody, would you be willing to you know, drink your own wastewater? I bet you lots of people are going to have a disgust reaction to that. Mm -hmm. right? And it's probably healthy because you probably shouldn't drink your own wastewater. Right? That's, that's probably a good idea. But, you know, that good, that good kind of cueing on that particular emotional response can sometimes misfire. So if you retreat this water, what you're getting is basically the same product with reuse water that you get with traditional ways to source water. Mm-hmm. But people still have that idea that clings to it. So it's kind of, you know, the, the water's tainted somehow because it's come from directly from wastewater and they know it, even mm -hmm. though all water has come from wastewater. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so you're right. So like what could explain this big difference between places like Namibia and Singapore in the United States? It's, it's not likely that people in Singapore or Namibia are any more disgust sensitive than the average American. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's probably not the best explanation for why there's this big difference between the, the acceptance between the two groups of people. Lots of people have looked at other things like social norms. So um, to the extent that you think that other people around you are, are accepting of direct reuse water, that can influence your acceptance of reuse water. Some other things like trust in authorities. So if people are trusting of the authorities who are making decisions, they're more likely to accept uh, reuse water. Uh, people looked at various demographic variables, so like education level, whether or not it influences whether or not people are willing to accept reuse water. But for us, so for in, in our lab, we're betting that one of the biggest predictors of people's acceptance of water reuse is just what they know about water reuse. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the people who work on water reuse, so if you look at the engineers, almost all of them are saying, look, if you're willing to drink tap water, you should be willing to drink reuse water too. And then you, you can run the same line. So why do experts agree that it's just as safe as tap water? 
but the average American does it. Right? So why so why do we see this disparity between experts and the people who, who aren't experts in water reuse? And our bet is that it's because the water experts just know a lot about water reuse. Mm-hmm. And so they know they just know a lot about the process and how safe that stuff is. And if you get the average um, average person to approximate that kind of knowledge, then you're likely to increase their acceptance of water reuse. Right? And this way you don't have to tell people about social norms. You don't have to make, make laws or mandate that people are going to reuse water. You just give them the information and the ability to understand that information, and then they can make their own choice, like whatever that choice will be. Mm-hmm. Right? And we're just betting that they'll approximate experts because you know the experts say that's just as safe as tap water. See, and that makes sense then if we loop it back to like Singapore, who has a 98% acceptance rate. Mm-hmm. Like there's those 2% of people who know what they need to know, and they still don't accept it. However, basically the whole country accepts it. Yeah. And it's just based off what they need to know. Their new water program is a giant rollout of an educational program that was across the whole country. There were treatment plants that people could walk into. They mm-hmm. could actually see what was going on with their water. And that is how they got such a high acceptance rate, just by teaching people what they need to know. And then they could make that decision for themselves. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I mean, we're, we're thinking that's exactly the path that happens. So New Water is thought to be one of these paradigmatic examples about how to roll out a reuse programs. They really invested a lot in public education and outreach. So they had people going on TV. They had, like you mentioned, they had uh, demonstration facilities where people could go in and actually see the water being treated. Uh, I think they even had locations where you could test out the drinking water so that you could actually get some experience with it. And so, like, people having experience with these reuse programs and understanding how they work um, is likely to be a significant factor above and beyond some of these other factors that are also likely to play a role, like social norms. Like, they, they probably play a role. Uh, obviously, if you just mandate something, that's going to play a role in people's acceptance. But for us, you know, we, we feel best about the education program, not only because we think that it's, you know, it's probably one of the prominent factors in people's acceptance, but it's also ethically better. <laughs> so mm-hmm. if, you, if you just think about the ethics of it, if you just mandate something, people have to do it regardless if they're willing, to, if they wanted to do it or not, or they incur some kind of penalty. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, and this is often thought to be uh, some autonomy infringing. So if you just mandate laws on people and, and they don't want to agree with that, with that particular law, they can disobey the law, but then they have you know, some kind of consequences associated with it. Whereas if you educate people, you give them all the tools that they need to make those decisions themselves, right? So you don't have to somehow externally mandate what the right choice is and then have that trickle down to the, to the individual. You just give the individual the option to make the choice and then they can make it themselves. And so for those kinds of reasons, we think it's ethically better. Right? So just think for yourself, like, would you rather have like somebody telling you what to do all the time or would you rather have the information so that you can make a well-informed choices that fit with your own values? And then be able to make that choice. Absolutely. The second one. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, th- I think most of us are like that, right? You know, but, you know, if you don't have the right information, um, you're not going to be able to reliably actualize those kinds of values. And so the same kind of thing might be happening with, with reuse water in the United States. People just might not have the right kind of information to actualize the values that they already have. So they might, like in principle, agree with, with using reuse water. They just don't have that kind of right representative understanding about what water reuse is like to make that choice. And so in some respects, they're making choices that go against some of their some of their deeply held values because they don't have the right kind of information to make the choice that fits with their values. Mm-hmm. Imagine going to a restaurant and like all the menu items were in like some foreign language. <laughs> right? Are you going to be able to reliably pick the item that you really want? 
It seems unlikely. Like you, you could just chance on it, it could happen, but it's just not likely. And so mm-hmm. giving, giving people the information and in a way that they can really understand it has the opportunity so that people can, can make their own choices about this. Absolutely. And I think it's that point that you just said in a way that they can understand it that is especially important. And this is a really important point because sometimes you can get illusions where it looks like you provide people with information and the information doesn't do any good. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, for example, if I gave you, like, like for example, I give you the menu in, in a foreign language, you're not going to be able to reliably pick the, the option that you want the most. Right? But, you know, uh, you know, something similar like that can happen uh, when you give people information, even in languages that they can understand. So imagine that, like, if we're talking about water reuse, and I'm trying to get you to understand some of the basics of water reuse and, and some of the properties of reuse water that would indicate that it's safe, and I give you a highly technical engineering manual, the average person just doesn't have the education and the skills to understand that. But that's not the only way you can present that same information to people, right? So you could present it in a way that they could actually understand it. But if you give people information and it's not in a format that they can understand, then it's going to look like the information doesn't do any good, right? So it's not because knowledge doesn't do any good. It's just that the particular way you decided to give that information to people isn't in a format that they can integrate and understand. Mm-hmm. So I think you're right. It's really important to understand where, where people are at and then tailor those messages in a way so that they can actually understand and start to approximate that, that expert kind knowledge. Mm-hmm. The way I'm understanding it, like you said, if you were just going to give somebody a highly technical pamphlet or dissertation on reuse water mm-hmm. and tell them to read it and you know make mm-hmm. a decision off of it, A lot of people won't understand that, whereas like, again, going back to Singapore and their new water facilities where people can go and actually see how that technical work is being done, it makes more sense to a lot of people. They did exactly what we're talking about. They're meeting the people where they're already at. For most of us, it just makes sense to see it versus Mm -hmm. like read whatever highly technical jargon words that these engineers have come up with, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) So yeah, it absolutely makes sense. Yeah. You know, we have some evidence coming out of our lab too that like if you tailor the message to the group of people who you're interested in reaching, it's an effective way of getting them not only to increase their acceptance of water reuse, but critically it increases what they know about water reuse. Mm -hmm. So if you measure what they actually know from a pre-test to a post-test and the intervention to some kind of education, if you tailor that education correctly, not only does it have the effect on the on the outcome variable, so the, the water reuse acceptance, but it does so via them understanding the information better. And that's really the critical bit. So it's not just that we can manipulate people into water reuse, because we certainly can do that. The critical bit for us is that it does so because they understand the information better. So we're not trying to trick them into anything. We're not trying to get them to, to change their values about anything. All we're trying to do is give them the information so that they can understand it to integrate to make the choice. And we see in this particular example that if you give them water reuse information in a way that they can understand it, they actually increase their, their water reuse acceptance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so we're saying that on average, the right move, uh, or at least the most ethically defensible move, is to give people information so they can make choices themselves. But that's not the only way you can go about changing people's minds. And, and sometimes there are other circumstances that would warrant doing some other type of intervention. So for example, if the risks of harm are high enough and there's not enough time to educate people about how to, you know, to accept something, then it might be a good idea to engage in, in just mandating certain kind of laws. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like we're saying that, edu- that knowledge is a magic bullet that's going to solve everything. 
It's just that you have to you have to weigh the cost and benefits with with different types of interventions when when you're trying to decide which one is the right one to implement. And so, for example, maybe maybe it's a good idea that we have speed limits. Um, th- these are things that typically don't decide upon. So people just don't go out there and you give them information about the risks of increasing your driving, and people always just drive at a safe level, right? So maybe in those circumstances, because people, even if they understand the risks, they're not going to follow safe practices. Uh, the right move is to just mandate to have speed limits, like right? so just put laws in that just stipulate what the safe limits are, and then people are supposed to follow them. Mm-hmm. So then, in the case of reuse water, the point is then to hopefully educate people so that they can make the best decision for themselves now so that later hopefully we don't get to this point but we may need to mandate it if for whatever reason we can't educate people fast enough to accept this uh, new technology of water yeah that's correct right so for example if tomorrow all the water that flows into oklahoma suddenly stopped Mm -hmm. it might be a good idea to just a mandate (laughs) reuse water Mm -hmm. right but i don't i think the environment that we're in right now just isn't that um And so maybe education is probably the right way to go. One of the things that you talked about just a second ago with the education intervention is that we can use the test to figure out where like each group is and basically see if our education intervention is working correctly Mm -hmm. for that group. So right now the test that we have is for average Americans. Mm -hmm. We looked across the whole United States and if we're going to use an education intervention based on that test, essentially, we're going to be making an intervention that'll essentially help out white people. They will be (laughs) the ones who fully understand just based on the test that we have so far. I mean, there is this risk. When you validate an instrument on the general population, there's a risk, right? We we don't know, but there's definitely the risk that people who are by definition not the average person um, might be left out on those educational interventions. So like, like you said, we don't know if, if this measurement is sometimes a fancy word called invariant across populations. And so if, a, if an instrument's invariant, then it does the same work across different groups of people. But there are lots of instances where, where instruments aren't invariant. And so different groups of people respond differently to that, to that instrument. And so, for example, in the water reuse program, if we, if we train up our instrument and the majority of the people who are, are taking that instrument are, for example, white, then we run the risk of optimizing our educational interventions only for white people. Mm-hmm. And it could potentially leave out other groups of people because of the kind of instrument that we used. It might be variant across those populations. Now, that's bad enough. But then when you think about educational interventions that use that tool as a metric to seeing whether well, or not the educational interventions work... If you develop educational interventions that only help white people out and don't help black people out, you, have the, you run the risk of increasing disparities in terms of water reuse. So certain communities might be more accepting of water reuse than other communities, even though all communities are likely to need water reuse at, at some point, or at least some communities. Mm-hmm. And so in, if this is the case, then you run the risk of actually increasing the existing disparities by going about and making educational interventions for, for certain groups of people. And so it, I think it, it behooves us to pay attention to whether or not these instruments are invariant. And then if they are, making sure that you develop educational interventions that help the different groups of people out in the ways that, that they need. And again, like just with the expertise stuff, it's not the case that people can't understand this information. 
it's just a question about you know how do you get that information in a format where where these people can actually integrate it with their with their choices mm-hmm. um, and so yeah so I think it runs the risk of uh, creating disparities now education isn't the only thing that can increase disparities almost all of these other methods that we talked about too like social norming uh, laws these can also increase disparities too so it's not just an education problem it's an everybody problem but from our perspective it, it might be a, a problem that's a little bit understudied and probably for good reason because it's hard enough to make a, a good educational intervention at all <laughs> period and there's just an additional level of complexity to make sure that, that that those educational interventions are tailored to the right groups of people so that they can understand it mm-hmm. all right so it, it might not be anything malicious it's just a you know it's just a a uh, technical issue that's involved in, in creating some of these instruments. Our job in our lab is to give people information in a format that they can use to understand problems. So we're not in the business of telling people what to think, right? We're just in the business of helping people think maybe a little bit better about the things that they already care about. And so that's the real goal in all this stuff. We want to give you the tools so that you can make up your own mind. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Feltz, for coming in today and for talking with me about this. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Dream Radically Podcast, brought to you by the Foundation for Liberating Minds. Learn more about the work of Foundation for Liberating Minds at our website, foundationforliberatingminds.org, our social media pages at Foundation4LM, and consider getting connected with the podcast and all our members by supporting this work through our Patreon, patreon.com slash foundation4LM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate the pod wherever you're listening. Power and may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams.